So uh, I first would like to ask Herbie Girardet if he would uh, give his presentation. Thank you. Thank you, David. Um, can you put on the slideshow, please? Thank you, David. Thank you very much for introducing me and uh, delighted to be back here after 10 years. In fact, I was a student here uh, 30 years ago studying social anthropology. And uh, so obviously what I was concerned with then is very different from the work I'm doing now, but the issue of how the world's people are affected by urbanization and by, by the impacts of industry and so on, of course, is very much the subject of today. So certainly the issue of how we look at traditional tribal societies and how the impacts, the ecological footprints of cities affect these traditional societies is one of the issues that I'm still deeply concerned about. And so over the last 15 years or so, I've increasingly concerned myself with the issue of can we under the auspices of global urbanization, which certainly we can see happening across the planet, can we find ways of reducing the impacts of that urbanization through intelligent design, through intelligent planning, through intelligent policies. And so I've written quite a bit about this subject, uh, quite a number of books and uh, TV programs and consultancy work. And uh, as David said, I'm now working as a senior consultant to this Dongtan Eco City project. So Dongtan is a fascinating project because it kind of, in some ways, flies in the face of what is actually happening in China in terms of absolutely breakneck uh, industrial and urban development without really considering the consequences very much. So it is very exciting to be involved in the project that is actually probably could be considered as a world leader in sustainable urban development. Now, uh, I'm just going to... Uh, yeah, this is how... It, Works, yeah. So um, this is just a quote from the former director of UNEP, the uh, uh, United Nations Environment Program. The battle for sustainable development, for delivering a more environmentally sustainable, just and healthier world is going to be largely won or lost in our cities. And I think that is a key issue today in the uh, development that is taking place across the planet. Here's just one picture that indicates where we are going, how the world has changed as a result of the uh, availability of fossil fuel-based technologies. And uh, this kind of image would not have been possible, both in terms of what the Earth looked like uh, 50 years ago or in terms of how we might be able to look down on it uh, from satellites and being able to actually take a picture, picture from outer space. It's not only the concentration of cities, of course, that is shown here, but also the fact that uh, all of these dots of light in one way or another represent pollution, particularly carbon dioxide, and certainly the issue of the impacts of urbanization on the global environment is becoming one of the key issues today, not only because of climate change, but also because of the fact that all these cities, of course, need hinterlands, not only global, uh, local hinterlands any longer, but increasingly global hinterlands in order to supply the resources uh, that uh, they require and also to soak up the pollution that they generate. So if pictures like this, which is a picture of Sao Paulo in Brazil, would not have been possible uh, 50, 60 years ago because the transport systems, the fossil fuel technology, the uh, ability to draw resources from elsewhere only became possible as a result of technological development 
over the last 50, 60 years. So today we have a world of increasingly large mega cities. Uh, uh, 200 years ago, the largest city on the planet were about uh, a million people or a maximum two million people. In fact, Beijing was one of the world's largest cities a couple of hundred years ago. Um, London was about a million people uh, in, uh, about a couple of hundred years ago, and then it became the largest city on the planet until suddenly, after the Second World War, this incredible urban growth started taking place uh, all over the world. Of course, all dependent on this use of fossil fuels. And so the question of how cities affect the global environment is now the absolutely critical one when we're looking towards uh, a sustainable future. And it's not only the burning of fossil fuels in our cities. I already indicated you know, this just concept of the ecological footprint of our cities. In the, light, in, in the 80s, I spent a lot of time making documentaries, including in the Amazon. And when you see pictures like this flying through these smoke clouds in a helicopter and beginning to realize that what you are seeing here is actually the pressure of consumption right across the world. In this instance, the conversion of rainforests into cattle ranches uh, and uh, the uh, creation of grassland in order to then supply hamburgers to cities like New York, London or Frankfurt. Or farming systems. It is impossible to imagine a world of cities the way we have it today without this incredible dependence on highly mechanized farming systems. And the farming systems of the world today require 10 times, 15 times more energy input in terms of the actually calories required of, of fossil fuel energy that are required to make uh, food production of this kind possible uh, than the actual food uh, calories that are contained in the food itself. So it's a totally and utterly unsustainable situation. Dependence on timber resources from remote places across the world. Then, of course, the linear waste management systems. We take resources from nature. We dump uh, waste in nature. And that, of course, is completely contrary to nature's own functioning in terms of the fact that nature is an essentially circular system where all wastes are reabsorbed beneficially back into the fabric of life. Or here the... Uh, discharge of uh, sewage from cities. This is from Rio de Janeiro, but it could be Shanghai, it could be uh, uh, you know, any, any major city in the developing countries. And the issue not, is not only the pollution of coastal waters uh, by sewage, but also the fact that nutrients are continuously sucked away from farmland, being dumped in coastal waters, never to be returned to the land. So only the input of uh, artificial fertilizers makes it possible to keep farmland productive, and that only uh, on a limited time scale over the next uh, 10 or 20 years. And then uh, it's not only fossil fuels that will like to, to be increasingly short supply, but also the fertilizers, and particularly phosphates that we currently get from a few sources, like in Morocco or Tunisia or Florida at this moment in time. Just a quick look at climate change. Uh, we've had a lot of, about climate change in the news recently, the 30% increase in carbon dioxide concentrations in the atmosphere, all directly related to urban consumption patterns because cities consume the bulk of the world's fossil fuel resources. When you look at both their internal transport systems, their energy use in buildings, and the transport systems on which they depend on trucking and flying in resources and to materials from elsewhere. Uh, but cities are also incredibly vulnerable, ultimately, to climate change, particularly the fact that 40% of the world's people live in coastal regions, 
And once uh, sea level rises really kick in in a significant way, it is cities in coastal areas that are going to be affected above all else. So that is actually an interesting psychological factor in the uh, way in which climate change is being looked at now. For instance, London as a city, vulnerable to climate change, vulnerable to sea level rises, is now taking very strong initiatives under the auspices of both Ken Livingston's uh, city government as well as under, uh, particularly under uh, the Deputy Mayor Nikki Gavron saying we need to look at the energy supply to our cities. We need to really get serious about understanding firstly what it means to be so vulnerable and secondly what we can do about reducing this energy consumption. So one concept uh, that you may have come across uh, and I already referred to the ecological footprint of cities which are basically the areas that are required to supply cities with food, forests, and products and to absorb their wastes. And so that is now being measured for cities around the world. <coughs> and for London, the figure that has been quantified is that London requires nearly six hectares per person of land to make its current lifestyles possible. So the total ecological footprint of London adds up to nearly twice the su surface area of the UK. London as if everybody in the world lived like London as we would need three planets, New York as five planets, and for Shanghai it's already now two and a half planets. So clearly we can't continue having that type of urban lifestyle foisted upon the natural systems of the planet. We need to find different ways of uh, uh, conducting our affairs, and the concept of one planet living has come up in that context, and I'll come back to that. I first started going to China about 15 years ago. Isabel Hilton has been going since the 70s, and she will tell us about that in her lecture. This is a picture I took of Shanghai, sorry, of Hong Kong at that time. I went back a couple of years ago, and this is what it looked like then. A dramatic difference, is it not? And this is haze from the hinterland of Hong Kong, mainly from Guangdong province, mainly the extraordinary quantities of fossil fuels that are now being burned in order to make that incredible economic growth rate possible that we keep reading so much about in the press. Uh, this is, of course, the brave new world of Shanghai, and so certainly we are seeing incredible processes of urbanization taking place in China, and uh, here is just a list of some of the cities that are all now uh, several million people, uh, and the largest ones are up to 30 million people in one place. It's absolutely astonishing. <coughs> and here are just some projections of where China is going. If current trends continue, uh, 50 cities of over 2 million people by 2050, and you know, many other larger cities in, on, in addition to that. Uh, and its urbanization rate would begin to catch up with that of Europe and the United States, rising to about 70% at that time, if current trends continue. But even today, China already had 16 of the world's most polluted cities. So clearly, this is a great deep concern. And as a result of the experience of pollution and impacts on health of people, but also impacts of the, uh, the environment itself, there's begin the beginnings of a significant rethink underway now in China, uh, faced with the realities of the massive increase in uh, resource consumption, extraordinary increase in GDP, that has taken place. So all aspects of development in China are utterly dependent on the use of resources and increasingly, of course, on resources not from China itself but from Africa, from Brazil, 
from other parts of the world. So we all have this image of uh, um, Beijing in, in, in our mind, beautiful buildings such as this wonderful temple. But, uh, of course, uh, modern Beijing is quite a different kind of city. And again, here, the changes that have taken place in terms of pollution, uh, of course, is not always like this because this pollution does not only consist of the fumes of the traffic. And there are now about 2 million cars now in a city of 12, 13 million people. But it's pollution also of uh, eroded soil being blown in from the neighboring regions uh, of, uh, of the hinterland of Beijing, the Gobi Desert. And here is some indications, and the Chinese are quite good at measuring the effects of pollution that are affecting them across their own country, the concentrations of carbon monoxide <coughs> over city regions such as Beijing. So, you know, quite a few cartoons, quite a bit of concern about this reality of an increasingly polluted country are now reaching the newspapers and certainly there's a very active debate going on in China about where this country can, should go from here. So one of the really significant breakthroughs that is happening at the highest levels of Chinese society is actually trying to rethink the concepts of economic growth and the cost of urbanization. So they are starting to measure green GDP which is the GDP minus the cost of resource depletion, minus the cost of environmental damage. So this is the measure now being applied in China, uh, but it's obviously, like in the UK, like in Europe, like in America, instantly there are challenges from those people concerned about wanting the current trends to continue unchanged. And so certainly, nevertheless, the costs of pollution that are now being measured add up to anything between 30 and 40% of the total GDP growth per year. So these are significant <coughs> figures and these are costs that are not currently actually being met, that are not being paid for by current generations, that it will ultimately be costs to future generations, which is an unacceptable state of affairs. So certainly the need to rethink economic strategies being accepted increasingly by the uh, top hierarchy in China, and again, we will hear more from uh, Isabel about uh, how that is happening on the one hand, on the other hand, the question of implementation <coughs> of a harmonious society of sustainable economic development and sustainable urbanization. <coughs> Here's the Bund, uh, a wonderful location for going to restaurants and having a good time out in the evening. But here's the realities of pollution in a city such as Shanghai and the extraordinary output of goods that comes from <coughs> factories in the hinterland of Shanghai itself. <coughs> and comes together from, from other parts of uh, China to be shipped out from this huge container, container terminal in Shanghai Harbor. But there's another part of the story which is also worth talking about, which is if despite all the problems of contemporary and current uh, industrial and urban development, you also have very interesting traditional aspects of having cities embedded in their own farmland still continuing. Um, on the edge of Shanghai, you have areas of land the size of the city itself set aside for the purpose of producing crops for the people of Shanghai. About 300,000 hectares of land uh, are set aside for this purpose, about the same size as the city area itself. And this is quite a significant aspect <coughs> of how uh, cities in China are still being conceptualized as trying to make sure that as much as possible of the food supply, certainly the vegetable supply, comes from nearby. And that is partly because people like fresh vegetables, 
from local sources because that works best in Chinese cooking. So Shanghai certainly as a growing mega city of nearly 15 million people now is a city of contradictions. It's China's economic powerhouse, but as I said, urban farming is still an important feature of urban planning there. And now Dongtan Eco City that I'm going to be talking about now is a significant <coughs> new initiative by the China, by, by the Shanghai city government. Herbie, would you like some water? No, I've got water, thank okay. you. <laughs> so here's just, um, you see Shanghai, and next to it, um, the Chongming Island up there at the top there, this long sausage, which is mainly land washed down <coughs> over the centuries, but particularly in recent decades from the headwaters of the Yangtze River, and very much recently as a result of dramatic deforestation in the, in the upper reaches of the, of the Yangtze River. And so this is mainly currently farmland. You can only reach it by ferry. Uh, a lot of it looks quite like this, as small villages and towns surrounded by farmland. Um, here is the local power station, but also, interestingly, the, the solar hot water system on this house. And it's interesting to say that 10% of dwellings in China today, across, right across the country, actually have solar hot water systems uh, uh, you know, on, their, on the roofs of their houses. It's a remarkable uh, record that China holds in this respect. Quite a bit of the island away from the more inhabited areas looks like this. And this is on the edge of a, a bird reserve on the southern edge of, of uh, Dongtan, uh, of, of Chongming Island. And this is, will be the location for building this new city. There are already several large wind turbines on the, on the island, and here are some of the crops that are harvested, maize that is harvested there. So, Dongtan. Now, Dongtan is actually a project originally of the, Chinese, of the Shanghai city authorities, basically in response to this profound concern about the direction of development, both industrial and urban development in the country. So they actually... Uh, went to various institutes in China itself, to uh, companies across the world, to give them advice on how to build a sustainable and eco-city on the edge of a bird reserve, the bird reserve being the wetland park on, on, on the right-hand side of this slide. So eventually the uh, London and uh, International uh, Design and Master Planning Company, Arab, got the job to develop this project. And it was fascinating to be involved in it right from the start because basically the brief was to be really rigorous about developing a city that had a dramatically smaller impact on, on, on the environment than conventional cities. From Shanghai, uh, a tunnel and a, uh, and a road bridge are also being built now across to Xiongming Island. That certainly will influence what will happen on that site in the years to come. So now here's the kind of model of what will happen in the first phase of, of this city, which will eventually be a city roughly the size of Bristol, about uh, 500,000 people. And this first phase, which will be completed by 2010, about 20,000, 30,000 people, uh, will uh, be basically a series of pedestrian uh, housing estates surrounded by parks, and these, uh, those in turn will be surrounded by, by farmland. Of, of the 86 square kilometers uh, that we have available for building this city, uh, which is roughly three quarters the island of uh, Manhattan Island, only 40% will be built on. The rest will be these compact housing estates. And I proposed originally that we should look at the 
garden squares of places like Notting Hill Gate or uh, uh, Clifton in Bristol because they are basically compact urban developments with uh, s- surrounded by parkland and in, t- in terms non terms surrounding, surrounding small areas of green land that c- are continued uh, to be used for the benefit of, of local people. So this has become the basic concept for developing a low-rise city, not building high-rise buildings at all, but only five or six-story buildings. So there will be pedestrian villages which will add up to uh, city uh, towns, which in turn will add up to a fu- quite substantial city, i.e. Dongtan uh, as a whole, which will be completed by 2030, 2040 or thereabouts. Now it's quite intriguing how we were strongly encouraged by Mr. Ma, who is the uh, man who is in charge of this project in the Chinese, in the Shanghai City Authority, uh, to make sure that we would end up with a city that was basically powered by the sun and the wind uh, and by biomass, that had highly energy efficient buildings, that would uh, have you know, its own farming system, that would, uh, where the buildings would be surrounded by dikes to prevent the worst sea level rises over the next century or so. Uh, and the soil from, uh, that would be used for that purpose would be dredged up from canals that are already there, but that will be deepened in the process of uh, dredging up the material. So these are a few images of what this city is likely to look la- like, and the construction of the first phase is actually going to start in the next couple of weeks. So the planning process is completed. Construction will start very shortly indeed. So you see here this a huge amount of greenery that will define the living environment of this city, but also a lot of water, a lot of canals, a lot of uh, farmland on the edge of the city. So all the uh, housing estates will be connected by footpaths, and then the uh, different parts of the city in turn will be connected by cycle paths and uh, by a fuel cell-based transport system of vehicles that will be zero pollution. A very intriguing aspect of the whole project is that uh, Arab have proposed building a novel kind of greenhouse on the edge of uh, Dongtan Eco City, which are basically enclosed buildings where food cultivation, vegetable cultivation will take place on several levels, and the buildings in turn will be uh, powered by, by wind power and by solar power on, on, a, on a renewable basis. But on this, on, on, in doing this, it will be possible to replace quite a bit of the farmland, a large proportion of the farmland that is being taken away to build the city itself uh, in compact and highly uh, you know, effective uh, multi-story food cultivation systems utilizing the recycled sewage of the city as a nutrient base. And the sewage systems of the city are intended to be living machine type of systems which are basically uh, biological uh, waste treatment systems where you can end up creating a sewage system that can also become a pleasure park at the same time. Very important for sustainable cities is the return of uh, biomass uh, either back to the local farmland to make sure that we do not continue to lose the humus content of our, our soils, but instead for it to be reincorporated in food production on the edge of the city. But biomass will also be part of the uh, electricity production system of the city itself. This is the kind of image that you see when you go around uh, Chongming Island today where you see a lot of recycling going on 
and certainly it will be a circular waste management system that we will have in Dongtan to assure that uh, all the nutrients, all the, all the materials that are needed to make the lifestyle possible will be, possible, will be returned as much as possible back into the, uh, in, into the environment on a sustainable basis. So in, waste, in, in nature, all wastes help to generate new growth, enhancing the world's ecosystems. Our waste must be in, used as an economic resource in cradle-to-cradle -cradle production systems. And we need to keep farmland productive. We must return organic matter to the land that feeds us. And so stimulating zero-waste systems minimizes resource use and pollution whilst creating new job and business opportunities. So these are concepts that I've been working on for a long time, but I'm really excited how these are all incorporated, basically, into the way in which we are conceptualizing this eco-city. I already referred to renewable energy. These are obviously pictures from elsewhere, but certainly uh, the, the, the roofs of the uh, houses in Dongtan, the buildings of Dongtan, will be studied with various types of solar collectors, both hot water systems as well as electricity supply systems and wind power will be a very important part of the uh, energy supply system to the city. You already saw three or two large wind turbines already there on the site. Many more of them will be built in the coming years. So it's absolutely critical firstly to have highly energy efficient buildings and then ultimately to use the Earth's solar income uh, which is so huge uh, to replace annual fossil fuel supplies. <coughs> It is absolutely critical for this project to become a stimulus for technological innovation and to initiate and spread enabling legislation policies from a project like this to other parts of the world. And that's certainly what we are beginning to see with this project. Uh, just an image of recycling, not exactly from Beijing, I have to, or Shanghai, I have to say, but from London, just to indicate how uh, the importance of uh, cycling is seen in the development of Dongtan. But there will be, as I said, fuel cell technologies, again, from other parts of the world. But all these good ideas that are you know, being uh, developed in various parts of the world all coming together for the first time in one significant city development. So the point of uh, a much reduced ecological footprint. Uh, as I said, typically the cities of the Western world <coughs> require anything between five and seven or eight uh, hectares per person uh, to make their lifestyles possible, always land somewhere else in the world. And so Dongtan will have a dramatically reduced ecological footprint as a result of intelligent design of local food production systems, of minimal use of energy, uh, certainly fossil fuel energy, and all the ingredients that I've already talked about. So the critical issue is for the future of cities, and this does not now apply only to Dongtan itself, but also to retrofitting existing cities to find practical ways into dramatically reducing footprints through all these types of measures. And it is certainly true to say that it's easier for a new city to be designed right from the start with these types of ideas in mind. One, po one point perhaps that I have not made yet that's worth making here now is that in China, as people move from villages into urban areas, typically their resource consumption goes up about fourfold just by the fact that having moved from a village to a to an urban area, and that is typically the figure for urbanization in other parts of the world. So by ensuring that all the ingredients of a sustainable city are built into urban design in places like Dongtan right from the start, it is assured that uh, the impacts of urbanization in a new city like this are dramatically reduced, and now the key issue is can we 
uh, apply these types of lessons to other cities, to existing cities as well. So that also means looking at the metabolism of cities. And again, I've already indicated that. Uh, currently, our cities are linear systems taking resources from nature somewhere and dumping their waste somewhere else in nature, as the top part of the slide indicates. And for a sustainable world of cities in the future and how we are applying these ideas in Dongtan, we need to create cities that have a truly circular metabolism the way nature itself functions. And that is certainly conceptually a critical aspect of how we can make cities work differently. Now, just a final couple of images here. This is an image from a city in Brazil called Curitiba where there are public displays showing how uh, the actions of all the people in the city uh, in contributing to recycling have dramatically reduced the amount of trees that the quantities of timber that had to be cut down uh, and by recycling cardboard and paper it was possible to dramatically uh, reduce impacts on forests as a result of these activities that everybody is involved in. So certainly in, in Dongtan we are aiming through these public displays to create a uh, culture of sustainability that really assures that people are actively participating and through their own actions contributing to an eco-city that really works uh, truly as a sustainable city. So here then to finish the key principles that we've applied here in this project. Small ecological footprint uh, and that's in part achieved through very compact pedestrian based urban development of apartment buildings that are nevertheless uh, have uh, good access to nature, to, to parkland and so on. Renewable energy supply in highly energy efficient buildings, zero emission transport systems, wastewater recycling, the circular metabolism I referred to a moment ago. And crucially, that we have biodiversity built into landscape design and then uh, very importantly in, in ways that is not done by other cities at this moment in time is to make sure that this new city will be embedded in its own farmland in ways that cities used to be, but in a very up-to-date and modern sort of way. So Dongtan then contains all the elements of a sustainable urban future, but then the question of how we can apply these types of ideas to existing cities, I think, is one of the major debates that we have to have in the coming years. And it certainly requires national and international policies for a sustainable future uh, that we need to create in a very effective and active way through uh, citizen participation processes. And here's a couple of books that you can read. We have published a book about Dongtan already, which I co-edited, which Arab and the Shanghai Industrial Investment Corporation in Shanghai published uh, last year, and also a recent book that I've written called Cities, People, Planet, Livable Cities for a Sustainable World. Thank you very much. Uh, can I ask you a question? Did I hear you say somewhere at the beginning of your talk that a large part of this project will be in place by uh, 2010? No, not a large part. The first phase, the oh, first right. 20, 30,000 people will be living on the site, yes, in, in four years' time, in three, in three and a half years' time. I mean, the time. scale of this, yeah, well, I mean, the short period. In it's which absolutely it phenomenal, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, we'll come back to these things later on. Um, right, well... And now we have uh, Isabel Hilton, and uh, Isabel is going to talk a bit more about um, 
sustainable development and particularly what's holding it back, I think. <laughs> yes, well, after that rather inspiring uh, vision of, of Dungtan, the, the eco-city, I, I think I may be here to pour a little, uh, not cold water on Dungtan, but, but insert a little reality about, meanwhile, what's happening in the rest of China. Um, Dungtan is a city going to be the size of Bristol. Um, China's population is 1.4 billion. Uh, China proposes to move uh, four or 500 million people into cities over the next couple of decades, build 20 new cities, uh, and so on and so forth. So many of you will be familiar with the, the, the kind of breathtaking scale of, of change in China, which includes things like a new coal-fired power station every five days and so on and so forth. Um, so while Dungtan is, is being created as this uh, in, inspiring vision of, of how cities could work and, and I hope will be an inspiration. The real cities that are being built now as we speak at a phenomenal speed are, are sadly not the Dungtan model. Um, so the overall title of this evening, which is the world's most populous country, will it embrace sustainable development? Um, I just want to talk a little bit about that about what uh, what the obstacles what what map a little the, the landscape which will determine whether or not China will um, uh, embrace sustainable development and in the course of that I'm going to talk about the project um, that was mentioned at the start which is the project we began last year um, since Herbie kindly said that we should uh, explore why uh, China Dialogue exists and what it's trying to do in the context of that uh, of that map. Um, Dungtan, of course, is a top-down project. Shanghai city government, Beijing approval, um, large finance, big international competition, uh, and it will be built. Um, and indeed, if you were to meet the senior leadership in China, um, and if you were to read the 11th five-year plan, um, you'd be very encouraged by the prospects for sustainable development in China, because essentially, after a couple of decades well, since the early 90s, of, of growth at all costs, of a model which said, you know, it's, it's okay to get rich and, and nobody is counting the costs. Um, the, the environmental damage of that process was so evident um, and so overwhelming that the 11th five-year plan did make a substantial change of direction. There had been a change of leadership which made that possible. So that in the 11th five-year plan, as opposed to the 10th, the 10th made a few concessions to environmental issues, it set a few targets, all of which were missed, uh, things like sulfur dioxide emissions and so on. They were all missed, and, and really, it didn't matter. Uh, there were no consequences in terms of the people who'd missed the targets. Um, so the 11th five-year plan, um, as Harry mentioned, was, was a rebalancing, if you like, of the growth model. Um, it was towards uh, a harmonious society, which is sort of Chinese code for we have protests all over the country, we have a lot of people who are losing out, and we've done this terrible uh, environmental damage. What can we do about it? How can we, how can we change the model and still deliver growth? And so that is the tenor of the 11th five-year plan. The 11th five-year plan, again, is a top-down affair. It sets, the, it sets the direction for the next five years. Uh, the problem is that the rest of the country sort of has to catch up with it because for that change of direction to be effective, all sorts of other things have to happen and all sorts of other structures have to work uh, uh, to promote it. However, as I say, if you were to 
meet the Chinese leadership, then you would think, terrific. If you were to go onto the street and ask people, you know, do you want China's environment to be cleaned up, they would vote overwhelmingly yes. So at the top and the bottom, you've got agreement. If, however, you were sort of to go into that rather large middle bit, and if you were to go, for instance, um, to find some local officials or some businessmen outside the capital in, in, in a place like Anhui province, then you'd find a rather different uh, response, and you, you might come away equally convinced that it would never happen. In fact, if you were trying to find uh, big businessmen in Anhui province, you might have a little trouble finding them in Anhui because the big business of Anhui is coal. And so the people who are big in coal tend not to live in Anhui. And this is the reason they don't live in Anhui. They don't live in Anhui because their own business has made Anhui almost unlivable. It's, it's a terrible place. So, of course, they have a choice. They could clean up the business or they could move somewhere else. And, and uh, I'm afraid they have not yet cleaned up the business. So what happens to the people in Anhui who can't leave? And people who are really dying in quite large numbers because of environmentally related uh, uh, injuries, their water supplies are, are failing, their air is unbreathable, their children are going to inherit a kind of wasted landscape. They don't like this situation, but what recourse do they have? Well, they could sue the coal miners, the, the coal owners. They could, but China has set restrictions. China is beginning to build a legal system, and people do bring lawsuits, uh, but it's extremely difficult. Um, and China has effectively banned class action lawsuits of the kind that would be entirely suitable for a situation like this. You can't bring a class action lawsuit in China unless you get the approval um, of, of essentially the bureaucracy. It's not in the bureaucracy's interest uh, to be sued in a class action lawsuit. Okay, so they could complain to the local government. Well, the local government is, is very closely tied up with local industry uh, and without, you know, banging on too much about corruption, uh, it's, it's not the healthiest of relationships. They could go and complain to the uh, State Environmental uh, Protection Agency. Yes, they could. Unfortunately in China, at uh, outside national level, the provincial uh, and local state environmental protection agencies don't report to the agency in Beijing, which is a, a very vocal and very outspoken a rather weak body, but it's doing its best. Th but they don't report to them. They report to and depend on the provincial governor. So if they're going to criticize what's happening, what the provincial <coughs> governor is doing in his province, they're not going to last very long. So they're not going to help you very much. They could go to the press, and a lot of people do go to the press, but the press can only do so much, and the press has to decide what stories they're going to take. If the press takes up a story that is in direct uh, conflict with a local economic power, uh, they again get into trouble. They could petition Beijing. They could go and take their story to the emperor, which is the traditional thing that Chinese people have done. When they have a grievance against a local power, a local authority, they, they go to the emperor and the emperor will put it right. Tens of thousands of people do this every year in China, and, and mostly they get a terrible runaround. And the, the, the number of petitions that actually result in any action is pitifully small. They could protest on the streets. They could. But to protest on the streets, and many people do, to protest on the street, however, does carry the risk of loss of livelihood. It carries a risk of injury. It carries a risk even of death. And many people have been um, beaten up uh, so badly that they have died. 
they could hope that new laws and regulations will eventually be passed which will make this kind of thing a scene of the past. Uh, and there is some promise that that indeed will happen because this is a top-down process. However, once those laws are passed, you have a problem of implementation. And there is a, an old saying in China, an old saying which derives from the empire, which is that um, uh, the, you know, the emperor has its laws, but the emperor is very far away. And the emperor is still very far away in China. Uh, so uh, accountability, governance, implementation still have quite a long way to go. So at the top and the bottom in China, you have people who really want a sustainable model, who really want a different model. In the middle, though, there is this large mass of people who are really doing very nicely out of the existing model, and they feel threatened by any change. And below them are increasingly discontented groups who are losers uh, in the current arrangements. Above them, there's, there's a ruling elite who see the danger, but whose control levers really don't always work. And through all these groups, there's a lack of understanding of the costs of the current model and the benefits of sustainability. Have you mentioned green GDP? Yes, there is a green GDP exercise. The green GDP exercise, the figures that, that Herbie came up with were not published in the first report of green GDP because they were simply too alarming. And so they were much reduced uh, when, when the green GDP exercise uh, was, was, uh, produced its results. So for most Chinese, pollution is the cost of prosperity. That's the price you have to pay for a rising standard of living, which is a very, very recent thing in China. This is a country in which the memory of, of hunger and poverty is very, very close. And, and people quite rightly want to live better. And they quite rightly feel they deserve to live better. Uh, their perception, the widespread perception, is that this is the price that you have to pay. So if you're asked to choose between prosperity and pollution, they will still choose prosperity. They will say, what can we do? And, and we have to live better. The other thing that you hear a great deal um, and, and heard a great deal until a couple of, a great deal more until a couple of years ago is development first, environment second. And development first, environment second was really the, uh, the Jiang Zemin model. Um, and it is still held very widely across the country, particularly at provincial and at local level. So all of this is really by way of saying that changing the framework of that discussion, changing the framework of those perceptions, uh, and, and stimulating a discussion on real costs, on externalities, on sustainability, is what we've been trying to do on China Dialogue. Um, China Dialogue is a bilingual website. We set it up because, well, there were a number of reasons. There was a conjunction, really, of factors. One, the fact that the Internet is changing the way we live and think and relate to each other. And, and it's creating these new global communities, new local communities, and new forms of organization. Secondly, Internet use in China is growing exponentially. China is becoming a major force in the world. Um, but it's becoming a major force in the world from a position of extreme isolation, historically. The last time China really felt like a, a global player was in the Ming dynasties with the, with the voyages of, of, of Admiral Zheng He, who got to the coast of Africa and so on, though I think not to America. Um, so, whoops. So, what you have um, is a country which is having a massive impact on the world, on all our worlds. Um, but it is not 
yet really at, at sort of citizen level or at many other levels engaged as a global player. It's engaged um, commercially, it's engaged in terms of the business it does, it's engaged uh, much more than it was, but in terms of ways of thinking uh, in, a, in a global uh, community, it's, it's still very much in a bubble. And China's still not really a member of the online community, if you like, globally, because there's a firewall, there are political reasons why you know, Chinese people can't um, engage fully uh, on the internet. And the final reason that we, we wanted to do this was that the environmental crisis in China is so acute now and the impact of China's global footprint on the rest of the world is becoming so extremely large. And we all know about the deforestation and the mining and so on. But 20% of the particulates in Los Angeles, in the air in Los Angeles, come from China. So it is a huge, huge impact. Um, and and the imminence of, of climate change, the climate change crisis, is going to demand that China engage with us and we engage with China in a wholly new collaborative way. And for, for that to happen, um, I think that there needs to be an engagement across a very broad spectrum with the Chinese interested citizen and the global interested citizen, if you like. Uh, because engagement simply at political or official level uh, is not enough. So what are the obstacles to establishing internet dialogue in China? Well, one is language. A fifth of the world's population speaks various versions of a, of a, of a language that, that most of the rest of, of the world doesn't speak. Um, so we decided to tackle the language barrier by devising a site which was fully bilingual. There are sites which are bilingual in the sense that some content is, uh, is bilingual. This is an example. You get limited um, functionality. This is really bilingual in the sense that all uh, content on the site is in both languages and we have discussion forums which we also um, uh, translate. So you can post a comment in English and uh, it will be translated into Chinese um, and vice versa. So you can establish a direct dialogue um, with, um, with people in uh, in a different language and across a cultural barrier. The other barrier, I think, is really uh, a very big cultural barrier. This is a country which has not thought of itself in terms of the outside world um, for a very long time. Um, so any dialogue with, with China that tries to get out of the official silos um, has to get uh, take account of this history and uh, take account of the, um, of the attitudes. So the cultural barrier for us was we, we try to get over that by setting it up as a dialogue. So we publish 50% of the content on the site originates in China with Chinese writers, um, and we will publish, always publish as many Chinese writers as non-Chinese writers. So on the negative side to establishing this kind of conversation, there's a profound mutual suspicion. Chinese people have been taught that all of China's troubles stem from Western imperialism and uh, it is going to uh, take time for new generations to explore different uh, explanations. China argues that its rise is peaceful and threatens nobody but, but not everybody feels that way and the potential for misunderstandings of a very dangerous nature with China I, I think is, is very high. Then there's internet censorship, um, the suspicion of Western motives, there's a great resentment about the past um, all of these damage dialogue and they, they will also damage future efforts at global agreements on uh, climate change and so on. 
So our dialogue is about issues which are of equal importance to both sides and issues that demand listening um, as well as talking. There are political restrictions on the Internet in China, as you know, um, but nevertheless, seen from the Chinese context, the existence of the Internet has created a kind of liberty for, of thought, of space, of, of individual thought, or a place to, to talk, a place to, uh, to have ideas, um, which is <coughs> profoundly important. You know, outside China, the, the Internet is a place of extreme libertarianism, and, and that dialogue has, has hardly begun in China. Uh, but it is the first public space which can be occupied by large numbers of people in which uh, things can, can be discussed. So it's, it's extremely important, and it's become extremely important in shaping public opinion. If something takes off on the Internet in China, you, you get a sense of what people think. You get a sense of people changing their minds. You get a sense of people discussing ideas. Um, and that brings me to the role of public opinion in the question of whether or not China will go for sustainable development. And I, I'm often asked, it's a common misperception about a country which is still technically a communist dictatorship, that, that therefore there are no politics. Of course there are politics. Most of the politics happen inside the party. That's, that's one difference. The other misperception is that public opinion doesn't count in, in a, a heavily restricted society such as China. That's not true either. Um, and it's becoming less and less true uh, because the, the Communist Party has, has sort of lost its ideology and nobody really believes in the old ideology anymore, not even, not even really in the party. So its political legitimacy depends on delivering <coughs> prosperity. That's one of the paradoxes of the situation. It, it, it sort of can't slow down the engine. But at the same time, it needs to legitimate itself by a claim to popularity. And certainly prosperity is popular. But also, there are widespread protests about all manner of things all over China, and those protests are embarrassing. Those protests were one of the reasons that the, uh, that the uh, for the shift between the 10th and the 11th uh, five-year plan. And if the public really does get the idea that the price of unsustainable development is far too high, then the government will change course, as, as it did in the five-year plan. So the role of public opinion may not be uh, as evident or as direct or as easy to discover as it is in the West, but it is very much there. So what the public thinks about these issues matters quite a lot. And one of the interesting things about this exercise is that it gives us a window into what people think. We soft-launched this site in, in July last year and officially launched in September. And the first thing that we noticed is that we have succeeded in creating uh, a really cross-cultural conversation. This is a Google map of where people are accessing the sites from, which I think is that Fiji somewhere in the Pacific. Anyway, it goes from somewhere in the Pacific um, across the states, Europe, and then all across China, um, and then Taiwan, Japan, and so on. So you, you've got, for the first time, a, a place where you really can, on a global issue, you can have uh, a global conversation. And the other thing is that, that it's, I realize it's kind of small laboratory in which you can study Chinese attitudes and Chinese concerns, and you can get some answers to the questions about whether Chinese people are concerned about the same issues as we are, what gets them riled up environmentally, what, who do they blame for their problems. 
we're not exactly mass observation, but we do begin to get a picture um, about what people care about, uh, simply because of what people um, respond to. So what, it's no surprise that in general terms, environmental degradation is very high on the list of concerns. Uh, climate change is not. Climate change is, is way down. Um, and in fact, it's way down in quite surprising groups. One of our, um, one of our uh, uh, Chinese uh, columnists, we have four environmental columnists who are based in China. They're very, quite prominent journalists very well informed, very concerned with this issue. And at a meeting last December with them, they were complaining, this was about the time the Stern report came out, they were complaining that the, the London office uh, was publishing too much on climate change because, you know, why didn't we publish on things that mattered? Why didn't we publish on, you know, particulates in the air or cancer villages or things like that? Because they said Chinese people don't care about climate change. And if you think back 10 years ago, you could probably have said that with great confidence about people in the West, and it's, it's relatively recent that, uh, that climate change has moved up the political agenda and is now uh, on the front pages of the newspapers as opposed to on you know, page 10 below the fold. So awareness of environmental, of, of direct environmental issues uh, is, is at, the, at present far higher than climate change. However, uh, involvement with those issues is very uh, direct. Here's a piece published in September, uh, one of the, which illustrated one, one of the interesting early comments. It's about um, uh, Fujian, and it's about uh, logging companies who violate the rules against uh, uh, logging in China, and they do so uh, pretty much in uh, conjunction with uh, the local uh, political authorities. Um, so this was published, and... A couple of days later, uh, we, we discovered that a, the comment had been posted from that village, from somebody who had been struggling against this uh, issue for a very long time, giving his phone number and inviting people to come and support him. So that was kind of encouraging. And it raises the question of who's talking on China Dialogue. And I think there are two kinds of people who are talking on China Dialogue. There are um, foreigners who are interested in China and interested in the environment. And there are Chinese who are interested in China and interested in the environment. And I should say that one of the purposes of, of this site is not only to discover what's happening in China, but it's to bring experience from outside into China. It's to bring experience in uh, uh, all kinds of environmental issues into China to, uh, to help to uh, raise the level of discussion. What we tend to find is that Chinese readers will engage very directly with issues about China. They will have much less interest in issues from Brazil or India or, or indeed Africa. So um, the the kind of, of, uh, of article that gets a tremendous response is something like this. This is Pan Ye, who's the uh, uh, deputy director of the Chinese State Environmental Protection Administration, who wrote an essay on socialist ecological civilization. Um, and he talks about um, the global inequalities that, that are threatening China's environment, including the role of, of, of the West, but also the rich in China. This got the most extraordinary response. Um, all pretty much Chinese. If you look at the color coding on this, the pink tells you which language the comment originates in. So, uh, in fact, if you look at this on the site, you will find that there's a kind of tremendous uh, outburst of mostly support and enthusiasm from 
Chinese, with the odd, I think there's the odd <laughs> non-Chinese, <laughs> oh gosh, yes, how interesting. Um, and, uh, but, but this is the, the, certainly, I think, the article that, that elicited most. Another one that really got them going recently was uh, this one by Gaoming Jiang, which is about uh, the UK's habit of sending two million tons of rubbish to China every year. Um, and, uh, and, and uh, how irresponsible this was. Um, this article had, it was pretty strong and it mentioned things like opium war and uh, generally bad behavior by Britain in the past and how this was analogous and, uh, and this, was, this was extremely interesting. Um, and it, it precipitated a kind of lively exchange. So you have an English-originated uh, piece here um, saying, hang on just a minute, you know, it's not really the opium war, we're not sending the rubbish in gunboats, you know, and, and, uh, and, and all that kind of thing. And then you got a, a very sort of angry and, and quite nationalist response from the Chinese. But as the discussion went on, and there was a second piece on, uh, on um, waste which continued the discussion, you got beyond that shouting, that kind of you know, grandstanding on both sides and, and the people began to get into you know, constructive solutions yeah what can we do, there are faults on both sides there's corruption here, there's you know, irresponsibility there um, but, but let's you know, take it forward a bit which was extremely promising so it gets off the nationalist tack and it gets onto a sort of a call for solutions and process um, the next one which also got a big response from China is um, special interest destroying China's environment by um, Liu Jiancheng. This, this is essentially about corruption. It's about how difficult it is to affect any improvement in China environmentally um, uh, to ad adopt different um, models of development as long as uh, things are not implemented. Um, now, one which was quite a, an interesting experiment for us, we wanted to talk about China's global footprint because it's, it's, it's huge and affecting us all, and, and including in Africa. Um, again, it's a delicate issue because as an old colonial power, it might be thought that there was nothing to be said from, uh, from the UK about the treatment of Africa. Nevertheless, the current issue is uh, that the China's rise is having uh, dramatic impacts uh, on Africa. Um, again, um, the comments uh, begin... Uh, they begin pretty defensively on both sides. Um, but as you go on, um, and we publish several articles, as you go on, you begin to get a discussion which is not only Chinese, um, British or, or Western, but also African. So you get Africans coming in saying, hang on, you know, uh, in, in some ways Chinese involvement with Africa uh, is, is very good. So... All these things are on the site, so you know they're they're, they're available if you want to uh, if you want to look at them. Um, the question I suppose we ask ourselves is is talking does talking about these things change anything? Well, how to change things in China is a very very long uh, discussion, um, which might sound strange because it's a country that's gone through enormous changes, but the changes which in a sense were uh, were straightforward are, are happening or have happened. Some things simply haven't changed enough. Um, and those, some of them are, are the most intractable things to change. The political system, the monopoly of power, the restrictions on press freedom, uh, the lack of accountability, the huge vested interests. And none of these, of course, are problems which are exclusive to China, but they are very large problems in China, and they are obstacles to change. So I guess to the extent that 
raising the level of the discussion, bringing information into China in a way that is not lecturing, that is not hectoring, that in, encourages people to engage with issues on the understanding that these issues are global issues, they're issues that affect us all. In a way, everyone has an, an equal standing in this discussion. Is uh, worth trying. Um, and we know really how hard it is here to prioritize environmental concerns over appeals to greed or appeals to need. And that really is even more uh, true in China. We did publish an article on Dongtan, actually, by a chap called Herbie Jirade. Um, that got an interesting response. I don't know if you ever looked at the comments. Um, but one of them was, um, you know, this is a, you know, a great project, but, but actually what we need in China is, you know, properly built houses everywhere and insulation and, you know, we need action or kind of across a, at a much lower level across a much wider spectrum. And... Um, and so I guess that's a conversation which will continue as Dungtan goes on. Um, there are other urban projects in China which are on a smaller scale, which are about sustainable communities. There's one uh, in Tianjin, which is being done out of Berkeley. Um, all of these, uh, again, are, are something to discuss in terms of, of whether Dungtan, how far Dungtan is going to push things forward and how far smaller scale um, I'm trying to get out of this because I'm sure you're fed up with seeing it go up, but I don't know how to do it, but maybe you'll tell me. <laughs> um, how actually you get this engine, you know, this, this thing to change course and, and where you should put most of your energy and how you get the mechanisms to work is, is the discussion that, that we're trying to have. And it's the discussion, I think, that is going to be uh, crucial to what actually happens in China as opposed to what might happen in China. So thank you. Well, the good news is we have both the BBC and uh, our, our up on the, uh, on the job. Uh, but uh, I'd like to thank the speakers, first of all, for, I think, what was a very f uh, full information, but also not just information, but a feeling for what's going on. Now, the rest of this meeting, I think, is, uh, to my mind, is a seminar. And I don't want people to think they've just got to ask questions. If they have a point of view or some information that they'd like to deliver as well, we'd be very happy to have it. And we will uh, invite the two speakers to respond where they feel they want to comment on it. So um, there are microphones which you really must use because it uh, helps us for everybody to uh, hear what's going on. Uh, the only limitation on what I've just said about this being a seminar is you still have to be brief in what you say. Right. So. Could, you, could you just give your name and uh, if there's any other information relevant? Geoffrey Newman, and I'm the UK representative of the Earth Charter, which is a global agenda for a just, sustainable and peaceful society. And I wondered whether we, we've um, taken on Aubrey Mayer's contraction and convergence as a major theme which seems to present a way of thinking about the necessity of balancing more energy consumption and resources in the West with the development of renewable energy in China and India and so on. I wondered um, two things, whether um, 
that in any way has um, been discussed in China dialogue and also what both of the speakers think of either contraction and convergence or the Earth Charter is, is a sort of approach which um, may or may not be of interest um, to the Chinese population. If, can you uh, just take uh, a note on this? I'm going to get two or three together. Is there anybody upstairs who wants to? Yes, right at the top up there. Hi, uh, my name is Jonathan Gaventa. I'm a researcher for the Green Group on the London Assembly. Uh, I know the Dongtan uh, project is being watched very closely in London and in cities around the world. Uh, my question, however, is that history teaches us that when planners uh, design uh, very grand and, and utopian schemes, whether in, in Brasilia or closer to home down the river in Thamesmead, the, uh, the, the lived experience of these cities often uh, varies sharply from the, the original ideas, ideals uh, of the planners. How do we avoid that in, in Dongtan? So will it Thank flop you. or will it go? Yes, yeah. we'll come back to that in just a second. One more. Sorry, yes. You're in front there. Somebody got, where's the phone? Where's the uh, mic gone? It's gone out of the room. Here's one over there. <laughs> Can you speak up? Yes. No, please. there's one over here. Oh, here it is. Uh, when we talk about sustainability, uh, most of it, I mean, right now, of course, it's a topic in vogue where we talk about all over the world, especially with the global warming. I just uh, fear at times that what do we define as sustainability in the end? Because is sustainability equal to or synonymous to energy or energy saving or it something to do with the climate change or global warming? Because somehow do we miss out on sustainability which can also be talking about neighborhood or social uh, so the social being of sustainability absolutely sometimes not talked about I sometimes fear that we as uh, I'm an urban designer myself and uh, sometimes I fear that we urban designers become like uh, just another neo-modernist who are now talking about making uh, a, a, a set city with a proper road length where a person can go to other place in 10 minutes and the bus is just next to you and everything is designed with accurate measurements and that happens in any part of the world, it works. Dongtang can be in India, it can be in China, it can be any part of the world because it's finally based on facts, facts of how the road length should be and how many schools should be in, in the neighborhood. But what happens to the social aspect of it is somehow not talked about. Yes, amazing uh, turbines and everything of that sort. So you, you're saying yeah. is sustainability uh, sustainable? <laughs> I think okay. we just need to decide what sustainability is. Could we take that anything uh, responses to those three points, please? Clearly. And if you put your hands up, I'll, I'll uh, early, I'll uh, remember to come back to you. Okay. Okay. Right. You want to start? Uh, on contraction and convergence, um, I did, actually, I did go and interview Aubrey Mayer for, for, for the site. Um, he talked for seven hours without stopping, and I haven't actually had time yet to um, <laughs> process this volume. Um, but I do know that, uh, that the Chinese are not very keen on contraction and convergence. I was quite surprised. Uh, they, were, they, they regarded it as... I mean, he, I, I, I think that it is a kind of... Model, a, a model for a just redressing, if you like, of, of the past. Um, however, they don't quite see it that way. They think that it writes off the past too easily and, and that not enough redress is given. 
Um, they're currently working out, you know, what their stance will be. As you know, they have no, um, uh, they have no limits set under the current arrangements. But they are. The last time I spoke to people in Beijing about this, which was towards the end of last year, they had brought down the date at which they would accept limits from 2050 to 2018, I think it was. But that's still. Obviously, part you know, it's, mm. that's not enough. Mm. Um, I have a sense that it may be shifting a bit, and that another kind of conversation is beginning now. Um, a lot of that is determined, to be honest, by the attitude of the U.S. administration, uh, because because if you're talking about what sets the, the tone of of negotiations and what China feels it should or shouldn't do, uh, it. You know, if it's being given no lead by the United States and put under no pressure from the United States, it's not going to, you know, put pressure on itself. Uh, so when it does move into, when things, you know, do move, as, as I think they are doing, into a more constructive dialogue on that front, then we will begin to see the shape of the Chinese position. Um, but I, alas, I think it won't be contraction and convergence. Herbie, do you want to? Yes, I mean I'm very familiar with the subject because I happened to have published the only book on the subject by Aubrey Mayer as a world uh, as a Schumacher briefing. These are a series of books that the Schumacher Society has published over the last 15 years. And thank you for also coming, mentioning the Earth Charter. We were together in a meeting that Jeffrey organised about the Earth Charter in Oxford last weekend. So it's a wonderful initiative, and I'm fully identified with it. Also, the World Future Council that I represent that will be launched in May. Uh, worldwide uh, is uh, using the concepts of uh, contract, uh, both contraction convergence but also the Earth Charter as key concepts that we want to uh, follow. Um, concerning the relevance of contraction convergence for China, I would say first and foremost, of course, we need to contract our energy output, uh, particularly our CO2 output, I should say, in Europe, in America, as the first priority. The concept of contraction converges basically says let those countries that have not got a lot of CO2 output per capita at the moment uh, let allow them to increase that while simultaneously uh, uh, reducing the CO2 output in the developed countries. So that's a very fair point, and in some ways uh, it helps us to understand why the Chinese are not that concerned about that issue, or for that matter, about climate change. They say we, you've done it for centuries, certainly for, for 250 years or so since the Industrial Revolution. Why shouldn't we do a bit of it ourselves? But at the same time. I think it is becoming clear that certainly when it comes to renewable energy development, uh, the Chinese are taking very, very giant strides in the right direction and certainly are beginning to, for instance, I mentioned uh, solar hot water systems. They are the world leaders in that, in that technology. The largest companies in the world that produce that stuff are in China and they're now exporting uh, in a major way. They're also exporting uh, photovoltaic systems now increasingly from China to the rest of the world. Meanwhile, Parts of China, particularly the remoter regions, are certainly now investing in, in wind power technology as well as solar in a significant way. So, I mean, whilst I share Isabel's concern about where China is going in terms of building more uh, coal-fired power stations all the time, nevertheless, there is a simultaneous and parallel process underway that certainly will help uh, that country to actually uh, very quickly get to grips with the fact that uh, we need to have different energy systems for a sustainable future. Now, that uh, raises the second point, or maybe I'll go to the third one first, sustainability, as you raised a moment ago. Uh, what does sustainability mean in the context of urban development? Should we not also, for, first and foremost, look at livability? I think that's the term that obviously uh, springs to mind in that context. And uh, certainly the 
environmental performance in terms of resource use of cities is of critical importance. And whilst you're right in saying that there were all sorts of weird and wonderful ideas about uh, model cities that sprang up in the 60s and 70s that have come to grief, particularly a place like Brasilia or Milton Keynes in the UK, uh, you know, do current concepts of sustainable eco-cities uh, are likely to have the, are, are, they have the same fate and that is also re re relates to the question raised by the gentleman up there. So I'd say firstly, uh, obviously one can only try one's best to come up with concepts, learning from the experience of where things have gone wrong in urban development since the 60s and say, okay, what can we do today to learn from the experiences of cities that are highly dependent on energy use, that are highly dependent on, on resource use of all kinds, can we not come up with a different way of doing the building cities? And certainly we've tried to build all these concepts into what we're doing in Dongtan. However, you're quite right in asking the question, what does that mean for people's daily lives? Could we uh, make sure that right from the start in planning such a place, you know, we really get to grips with people's deep desire for neighborhoods, for pleasant spaces around, and for social life, for jobs, of course, as well. And certainly there will be lots of eco-businesses uh, in, in, in Dongtan uh, right from the start. So we're certainly trying very hard in conceptualizing a place like this to try and answer these questions as well. In fact, there is a gentleman working on Dongtan with the express purpose of looking at cultural sustainability. Uh, he works in the uh, Shanghai office of Arab. So, but nevertheless, I think the place can go wrong. There's no question about it. It's uh, uh, still a bit of a utopian vision at this moment in time, and I'd say certainly in response to your question, we cannot you know, sign a sort of on the dotted line saying, yes, we can guarantee that this place works, that the place will be wonderful, that it fully delivers uh, its, its, its expectations. And there's one aspect to, to that that I have a particular concern about, which is the fact that they're building this tunnel and road bridge to Dongtan from Pudong, which is, of course, the main uh, office center in, 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 in Shanghai. And that in itself will certainly influence the character of the place. It could, it could end up in part as a dormitory for wealthy, wealthy people who kind of want to live in a green space in ways that they cannot uh, currently do in, in Shanghai itself. So there is that danger. And, uh, but at the same time, it, certainly in terms of planning for uh, you know, housing development on Dongtan or in Dongtan, there will be plenty of social housing. There will be plenty of people, for instance, quite a few people from the Three Gorges Dam uh, who had to be relocated have ended up living on Chongming Island. So quite a few of those will in turn then be uh, living in Dongtan. So there will definitely be a strong social mix. There will be certainly the emphasis on local agriculture, I think, will be a very special quality and character of, of Dongtan. And so I said we are trying our best to build ingredients of a truly sustainable place into the concepts as best we can of this project. And now we will have to see what the reality will look like in years and decades to come. Hi, my name is JP Renault. I work at Sustainability. Um, let's assume for a minute that it works as planned, as the planners say. What's, um, what are the factors preventing Dongtan-like project to scale up? Is it political, as we talked, or is it finance? Is it not enough Arab engineers? <laughs> okay. Well, in fact, it is being scaled up. I mean, it, it's just won a competition as the, as the most successful and the most most uh, important urban development project in China. 
and Arab have got six other projects on the boil. They haven't signed contracts yet, but they're well on their way to doing that. So uh, I think uh, it's already clear that whatever happens, I mean, if the first phase of, do I mean, it remains to be seen how long it will take for those other projects to, to uh, be initiated and to be activated and for contracts to be signed, for funding to be in place and so on. But Dongtan is getting an awful lot of publicity, not just in, in Europe and America and elsewhere in the developed countries, but certainly in China itself too. There's been so many newspaper articles about it, uh, television reports and so on. So the very fact that here is a completely new approach to urban planning but at the same time, I should say, steeped also in traditional knowledge and practice. I mean, I said earlier on that Dongtan, the layout, comes from looking at the garden squares of Notting Hill Gate and a and, uh, and, uh, place like Clifton, or for that matter, apartment uh, uh, arrangements you know, in, in, uh, in existing cities elsewhere in the world. So there is an attempt to go back quite a bit to traditional layout in, in, uh, in, in cities and not to go high-rise in ways that uh, has been the practice in, uh, uh, in Shanghai and other major cities in China until, until now. So certainly all of that indicates a livable place that will also be working very, very hard to be sustainable. And I think that in itself is a uh, reason for why it is looked at and it's likely to spread and be, uh, be copied in one way or another, not just in China itself but elsewhere in the world. Yeah, it was over here, wasn't it? Yeah. Can I, uh, could you put a few hands up and I can see? Okay, okay up there. And at the back, two up there. Right, and I've got two over here. Uh, my name is Gilson Schwartz from Brazil. And I'd like to ask uh, about the, the digital element in the eco city planning. Mm -hmm. uh, because I see here a, a divorce. Uh, the China Dialogue, of course, is a digital tool. Uh, what's the role of digital tools in the design of eco-cities, rather than just commenting on the, on the issue? Because the China Dialogue is like a meta language on the natural and the, and the <coughs> imbalances that we are witnessing. Mm -hmm. But what is the role of digital infrastructure in the planning of an eco-city? You want me to yeah, yeah. Well, I think it will be very, very important to, to, to this city. I mean, right from the start, I think the, the, the sort of best broadband technology will be incorporated in, in, the, in, the, in the infrastructure of the city, and without a doubt, it will you know, shape the character of the place to quite a significant degree, being able to do that right from the start. So certainly, I mean, in terms of digital technology, I mean, the, the whole design process of building or creating or master planning the city up to this stage, very much the latest... Uh, you know, uh, computer technologies were, were used for that. But certainly, uh, Dongtan will certainly, in, in part, be a city that will have a very global reach in terms of the fact that there will be the presence of institutes of all kinds, universities, uh, uh, in environmental institutes, uh, environmental companies of various kinds, and all of them, without a doubt, will be uh, draw, drawing on, on uh, the availability of, of, of broadband technology and all that kind of thing. So that is certainly very much the, the intention for, 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 for you know, uh, taking that further in, in, in Dongtan. Jennifer André, LSE student. So I, uh, my question is about like, the next macroeconomic policy. So does the Chinese government think about new macroeconomic policy to fight the climate change or also to prevent like a sustainable environment? 
Did you catch her? That's you first, I think. Mm-hmm. Sorry, could I, did, I didn't get the last bit of the sentence. Okay. Uh, does the Chinese government do something to prevent um, a sustainable environment in, in general? Well, that is the intention in the, in the 11th five-year plan. However, uh, the mechanisms are not quite there. I mean, the, the, in the uh, – it's pretty much, I, I think, rather than a kind of fundamental overhaul, it's pretty much trying to clean up what is uh, already in play. There is, for instance, a 20% efficiency target over the next five years, which uh, energy efficiency target. Um, there's a great deal of – there's a huge amount of waste in the Chinese system, uh, in the Chinese industrial system. It takes three times the inputs to create one unit of GDP in China than it does in India, which, is, which makes no sense at all. Uh, you know, five or six times as much uh, as it does in Japan or the United States. Um, so I think they're, they're kind of the, major, the major policy problem is is trying to reform that in a system which is neither a market economy nor a command economy, in which, therefore, the command levers and the market levers are both compromised in their effect. And, and this becomes quite hard to do. Um, so to get energy efficiency, you know, it would make sense to raise energy prices. This can't be done for a whole series of, re- of, of reasons and knock-on effects and so on. So it's very hard to create the levers. Uh, the intention is there, and we shall see how this process uh, works out. So far, I can tell you that they've missed the target for the first year. <laughs> okay. And up here, there's something. Right, yes. Um, <clears throat> hello, my name is Diana. Uh, I'm from the AA. Can you this put it closer? Yeah. Is that fine now? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, um, uh, my question is um, slightly shifts from Dongdon City to the Middle East, which is, um, say, the resource house of the world now. Um, what, what are you, your views about development of these cities, as in the way they are growing? Are they sustainable growth uh, as, as the rate of development is so fast-paced? So I'd like to know your views about that. Well, I mean, certainly urbanization at this moment in time, particularly in in those parts of the world that you refer to, the Middle East in particular, is an incredibly unsustainable process as it currently is occurring. And you just don't need to look no further than Dubai and see what an extraordinary folly is being created there. Even though the city of Dubai has been hosting the United Nations UN Habitat Office's best practices, uh, prize giving for for many years, every two years, they're giving these prizes for how to do things sustainably. They're doing exactly the opposite when it comes to developing that city. And it's just an extreme example of uh, what is happening all over the world. Everywhere you look, urbanization by definition means a dramatic increase in per capita resource use in those places where people move from traditional lifestyles to, to urban areas. And that is why I was emphasizing the importance of sustainable urbanization at the beginning of my talk with this quote from uh, Klaus Töpfer, the uh, uh, recently retired uh, Director General of of UNEP. We are currently driving the terrifying changes that are happening on the planet, particularly vis-à-vis climate change, but also resource use in general, through processes of urbanization. So 
the critical issue is how fora such as these, people concerned about these issues, can influence how we conceptualize cities in the future, how we conceptualize the introduction of renewable energy of all aspects of uh, sustainable urbanization as a matter of urgency. This is a hugely urgent issue because as we build cities that are almost by definition going to be resource hungry because of bad design, because of high energy efficiency of buildings but low density in terms of transport systems and so on, we are in danger of creating permanent dependence, highly unsustainable dependence on resources in ways that the planet, planet simply cannot cope with. So I would say it is absolutely a crucial question that you've raised and we, are need, we need to have many more voices that are concerned about these issues and uh, try and propose alternatives. Thank you. Yes. My name is Gary Grant. I'm an ecologist. Uh, my question is, is uh, the eco-city in the wrong place? Um, if the uh, client was the state or the regional government, yeah. would they not have considered a range of possible sites? And wouldn't it normally be the case that a very low-lying wetland site at the mouth of an estuary uh, at a time when sea levels are rising, where there's huge new infrastructure being planned, wouldn't it normally be the case that that would be considered unsuitable? And perhaps there might be other locations which are on higher ground, perhaps already previously developed with mm. existing rail infrastructure and highways where uh, you would be able to get gains more quickly. And is it not the case that somewhere like Dong Tang could have become a park for sh people of Shanghai to visit, undeveloped, you yeah. go by boat, you get away from the city... Yeah. Um, and you develop elsewhere. Yes. Well, you raised a very important point here. I, I certainly, right from the start in the discussions about how to develop this site, uh, you know, obviously these questions came up. I mean, it's an interesting situation. I mean, I have to say, I don't work on this project on a daily basis, and I'm not one of the guys who sits there and draws up all the detailed uh, plans for it. But I certainly raised this point in the very first discussion we had. Of course, the fact of the matter is that there is a city authority that said here is the place where a city will be built uh, and this land will in some shape or form be developed. How can it be done in the way that it firstly doesn't destroy the wetland area next door and secondly how can it be done that it's not going to be uh, affected by sea level rises uh, in, in, in ways that will make it impossible to, for this place to exist in 100 years. So firstly, uh, the actual level uh, above sea level of the, of the site itself is about three meters above sea level. Secondly, as I said, there will be dredging of canals and there will be a lot of material from the, from the tunnel that's being built that will be available to build dams uh, and you know, walls literally around the, the various villages that are going to make up the city as a whole. Uh, certainly the, the foundations of the buildings will be higher than the actual uh, island itself. So from that point of view, certainly, uh, you know, uh, unless uh, the whole of Antarctica breaks up very, very quickly and, and un unless Greenland, uh, you know, sheds all its ice into the oceans in a matter of uh, 100 years or so, the place should certainly be sustainable from that point of view for, you know, a couple of hundred years without too much difficulty. But certainly the, the issue, the wider issue that you raised of location of cities, where should they go, uh, you know, uh, is a very important one. And certainly as, as 
people who are, have asked to develop a project on a particular site, one then makes the best of that site rather than, uh, but at the same time, Arab has initiated discussions on, uh, on, on, in China itself on, on the best locations for future eco-cities and certainly the higher ground is, is being considered very strongly for other projects. They generally seem to go where the politicians want them to go, don't they? Mm. Yes, right at the back. Hello, hello. My name is Carl Yeager. I'm a dumb American who's been living in Bath for 30 years. Uh, prior to that, I spent five years of my life heading a project to build a pedestrian city in California, uh, about the same size as this one that we've been talking about. And listening tonight, I come away thinking that uh, this new community, when it is built, is sort of a Disneyland. It is so totally atypical of the rest of China. The, the 1.4 billion people who live in China will not live in those kinds of, in that one type of community. It will be just kind of the most atypical place in a huge area of what is not right. And I was interested in the contrast between what Herbie said, whom I dearly love, and what his speakers next to him said. They seem to be a total yin-yang in terms of the reality and the dream, which I think the dream is wonderful, but it is a dream even after it happens. Now, I would just throw one thought at you, and I would ask the speaker, uh, the second speaker, that uh, I moved to Bath because I thought uh, when I failed in my project in America because there happened to be five nuclear power plants built next to our beautiful pedestrianized city, uh, I said, to hell with building anything. I'll just move to Bath and I'll make it my new town. And there's a city of 80,000 people which exists and which has existed for many years, and it seemed to be one of the great places in the world. Unfortunately, when I got there, I didn't know that it was the second most polluted city in, in England after London. And I didn't realize that the clever people didn't live in Bath. They lived in the little villages outside and they drove in on their four-by-fours to do their shopping and to go to the 50 restaurants and to buy their food and so forth. But the smart thing to do was to be outside, come in, bring your pollution in in your cars, and get the hell out. So your kids slept in a nice, comfortable, healthy environment, which my kids did not.